Welcome to another episode of Hallowed Waters Podcast. I am Max Sapinski, and I am wishing all you Salmonid Savours, you trout troubadours out there, a wonderful hello coming to spring as we are coming into April and when all the hatches start happening and the stream of fishing gets great and Springer salmon start ascending the rivers. Um, this is a very uh, special new podcast because we're doing it live at the birthplace of brown trout in the Western Hemisphere. This is sort of a sacred place. And um, this is the first time we've done a live one, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it because um, it's uh, very rare that you have these hollowed waters in these unique parts of the world where you could say this happened there and that happened there. But what happened here was very significant, and the fact that where we are today at 1884 Fly Shop in Baldwin, Michigan, is the Ground Zero Waters, which I always talk about Ground Zero Waters in my Nexus books and all the books I wrote, where the brown trout came to the Western Hemisphere. And this was the spot which brought these beautiful fish to you guys all over the world and uh, in, in the Western Hemisphere and, and all the places in Montana and, and down in South America and everywhere. Uh, it was this little crazy little town, this little logging town back in the 1800s where they came. And um, the fish here still look absolutely beautiful like they did back in 1884. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that ground zero stuff because I constantly be being asked about what is this ground zero stuff you're always talking about, Sapinski, and what, what what does this all mean? So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about guides, and we have a guide legend with us today that is the center of our podcast, a uh, 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 rowing troubadour, a, a man that is a streamer sensei on steroids. This guy has been around for a while. Um, he makes me look young, which is actually good because, uh, and actually I saw him today and he looks better than I do. So, and he's got 20 years on me. So I'm just praying that I get up to that caliber, but uh, we're going to talk about him and it's perfect timing because he has a new book out and um, the book is a wonderful, wonderful work uh, that we're going to talk about and we're going to review in Howard Waters journal. And uh, it's called the view from the middle seat. And uh, um, we're going to get to talk to this man shortly about this. But first thing, I'd like to thank you all for listening to the podcast. Um, we started this thing last summer, and the response uh, of listeners throughout the world has been just amazing. Um, uh, I can't tell you how many people are, are listening and then tuning in. We are now on Apple Podcasts, which really uh, boosted our boosted us up, and Spotify and Apple. And uh, we're getting great comments. We're getting tons of questions every day for our podcast so thank you so much listeners for tuning in and we promise to bring you more um we are in the process of doing the migratory space series right now we just did uh, simon gosworth from rio our wonderful british gent that brought space fishing from across the pond uh we did other great notables like tom larimer and rick custage and topher brown atlantic salmon uh the summertime we did the big brown trout hunters series and we had some great people on there. And we're going to resume the Trout Hunter series this spring with uh, Dave Jensen from British Columbia, who's done so many great YouTube videos. And uh, just so many people that are bitten by the passion. And, and it's all about the passion that drives us to this. And it's all about the, the dance that we come to every day, that we wake up and, and we just got to feel the vibe and the spirit, the karma, the zen, 
that makes this all happen. And it's without the people, this is a dead sport. Fishing is a dead sport. It's about the people and the passion and, and the energy that everybody puts into this thing. So thank you very much. Our new issue of Hollowed Waters, the spring trout opener, is coming out April 1st. And we are starting another new podcast series on April 1st called Invasives, Introductions, and Reintroductions. And we have uh, Jim Dexter from the Michigan DNR talk about all the great things that have happened in Michigan since the 1800s and how we're going to be reintroducing grayling and we reintroduce the coaster brook trout and all that great stuff. So without all that, uh, I want to get tuned into these cool cats that I have over here. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit first about this great area, but we're at 1884 Fly Shop. And if you ever come through Baldwin in Northern Michigan, you've got to stop in and see Dan White at this cool shop that he came up with. It's 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 a diamond in the rough. It's an oasis in a desert of, of things. When you come here and see what he's done in a short period of time, he'd taken an old dilapidated restaurant that had 15 pounds of fried fish grease caked into the ceiling. And he's transformed it into this absolutely beautiful place. So first we're going to say hello to that man that runs that shop. And we're going to introduce him, but we're going to also introduce the man at, that has written a book that I am just absolutely astounded with how beautiful this thing came out. And this guy is a trout bum. He's a streamer bum. I've heard of him back when Bob Linsman wrote about him in Wild Steel and Atlantic Salmon. Uh, there is one dude that can, can throw streamers, that can fish dry flies, that can do just about anything. And uh, that man is Jack Ford. Welcome to the podcast, Jack Ford. How are you today? I am honored to be here. Wonderful. That is wonderful. Good to have you. And we're going to get, dig deep into your book. And uh, I'd like to introduce another man that we're having here live, the guy that's responsible for this 1884 fly shop. And that is Dan White. Welcome, Dan White. Hi, man. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Dan, let's talk about what gave you the inspiration on this shop. What was what was the whole gig, man? I, I mean, I walked in here and I felt like I was in Bozeman, Montana. I felt like I was in Roscoe, New York on the Beaver Kill. I felt like I was somewhere. It is truly astounding. And uh, uh, did you get any psychiatric treatment prior to opening a fly shop to make sure that you were of sane mind to actually want to do that, Dan? Well, you know, now that we're a year into it almost, Matt, I definitely think I need a review uh, of my mental status <laughs> for sure. Um, but, you know, you mentioned places like Bozeman and New York, and uh, those are epic places. Those are epic places to trout fish. Those are epic places to travel to and see. Um, and after I had the opportunity to go out there, uh, just a few years ago, um, as soon as I thought of Epic Fisheries, Baldwin, the Pier Marquette came to mind instantly, um, even maybe Michigan as a whole. Uh, and so with some thinking and maybe some daydreaming, um, we walked through a building, we buy the building, we remodeled the building. And before you know it, here we are, a fly shop. Um, being participants in one of the best fisheries our state has to offer. So uh, it's been kind of a, if you build it, they will come mentality. Uh, and hopefully moving forward, they will really come and, and help this fishery shine even more than it already does on its own. So, Dan, how long have you been fishing? How, long, how did you get bit by the Paramarquette uh, intoxicating waters? 
Well, you know, it was probably, I think it's been 22 years. I drove up here in a Dodge Stealth. Uh, we got here at one o'clock in the morning, didn't know nothing about nothing. Um, we probably did a little trespassing. We probably did a little bit of questionable fishing. Uh, but nonetheless, the fishery itself just had me enamored. And then as soon as I realized it was the brown trout fishery, it was, uh, I just, I had to be a part of it. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I know you've, uh, you've probably slung streamers a lot with Jack in the past, haven't you? We have in a couple different areas for a few different species. Yeah, I think I've seen you guys coming down the Muskegon one time, and I was like, every time I see somebody coming down the Muskegon, I'm like, who the hell are those guys? God damn it, that's my river. You know, Jesus. Blah, 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 blah. But, you know, that's what happens when you get old and crotchety. And this is Jack's River. I'm sure Jack's got a lot of rivers. Um, well, that's great. What What do you envision? Um, where Where do you see this going to the next step? I mean, you're doing a great job now. What, what do, you, do you have any more plans for what you're going to do over here? You know, with all the regulations that are ultimately helping the fisheries manage the traffic, um, not to say that we're going to, you know, so to say, set up a tent and change the world, uh, but it would be nice to be a part of some amount of change here on this fishery. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Dan, I can't tell you how impressed I am with this place and, uh, Thank you so much for uh, for allowing us to do a podcast here and um, carrying our books. And um, God bless you, man. All the best. You let me know I could help you, but I really appreciate what you're doing. And so many people do appreciate it. And I've heard nothing but great comments. And everybody, if you are in this area of the woods, you have to stop by and see his shop. And here's a man that's dedicated and is passionate and he shares that passion. And when you come in here, um, you're going to see everything, all the detail, all the woodworking he's done, all the quality. It just breeds of, of passion in every everything he's done. So thank you very much, Dan, for having us here. Absolutely, Matt. And from you, that's a huge compliment. So I appreciate that a bunch. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I'll leave you and Jack to it. Wonderful. Okay, Jack, I get to spend some time with this man. Jack Ford was born in a log cabin somewhere. What? Where was that log cabin, Jack? No, I was born actually in Saginaw. Saginaw, okay. So, your parents were they uh, immigrants or were they here? What, what, what? What's your whole background? Where did this old passion first? Let's what, what bloodline you come from? Are you a Scotsman? Are you an Englishman? Are you an Irishman? What are you? I don't really know. You look like you look. I'm swear to God, you look very Irish or or Scandinavian. I know I have Irish in in me because my grandfather's name was McCoy. Okay, well, there you go. See, so I also have English in me because my great grandmother's name was Harrison. Well, geez, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I've never dug into it. I don't really care, you know. Yeah, well, it just it all it all comes out later in life, you know. I mean, I the Polishness in me comes out. I'm eating sausage like seven days a week and eating (laughs) gawunky at nighttime, and I live on capusta and you know all the stuff. And my wife's like, "What the hell's wrong with you? What happened to the?" The world gourmet, you're just turning into one old Polak. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm in, a, I grew up in a Polish neighborhood, believe it or not. Saginaw has got more Polish Falcon Halls and more Kosciuszko clubs than anywhere I've been. And oh, I, yeah. did a, I did a meeting for uh, some Saginaw Trout Unlimited or some. What's the chapter you have over there? What's the chapter? It was, uh, back then it was William B. Mershon chapter. Yeah, Mershon chapter. And I, did a, I, I spoke at that when my selectivity book came out. And it was at a Polish Falcon Hall. 
And honest to God, it smelled like my mother's kitchen. I mean, it smelled of capusta and kawamki and sauerkraut. And uh, I and everybody in there looked like looked Polish and they had a ski at the last name or something. And it was really I felt like I was at home. So I love that. And Saginaw's got, you know, I know a lot of Polish people from that area. That's one huge area of uh, of Michigan where there's a lot of I think a lot of Detroit people moved up to Saginaw and it just kept going up yeah. the whole coast. So it's very interesting. But um, let's talk about when. When did you think that you got – so when was that – everybody has an epiphany moment. And, you know, I talked about to Simon Gosworth on the last podcast, and um, we talked about his epiphany moment, and it was in England, and he was fishing in Devon in England. He caught his first uh, brown trout, and then he caught his first sea trout, and then his father was a casting instructor. And then he knew from there on that he was going to be a, 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 a sensei, a a a, a – a priest of this high noble art of fly fishing and, and look at where Simon is today with you. What got you into the bug of fishing? And then we're going to talk about how you got into the next step of fly fishing. Was it family driven? Was it father, grandfather? Where did that genetic drive come from? I, I grew up and my great grandmother uh, had a, had a cottage on a lake. And uh, she actually built it for us boys. And uh, when I was very young, we would go up there on the weekends. And and when I got to be about 10 or 11, I started spending the whole summer up there. Wonderful. So, and one of, the, one of the neighbor boys that was about five years older than I was, was a fly fisherman. So was his father. And that's how I got fly fishing. Wonderful. What um what was the first trout you what was the when was the first time you caught a trout on a fly rod? I caught a trout on the Cedar River on Bard Road when I was about twelve years old, so it would have been uh, nineteen fifty two. Wow, wow! And what did you catch it on? Do you remember? It was a fly. It was a spinner bait. Oh, yeah. So we talk a lot about that. And I talked to Rick Kustich, my brother from Western New York. And we used to we used to top off uh, white wet flies with red crawlers. And we used to fish salted minnows that we used to weave a hook through. And we fished the same thing. Exactly. We, the same thing. <laughs> and we and I, that was the art form. And then eventually I, we became dry fly guys. And then all of a sudden. I, you know, but it was that process of the salted minnow, the red wiggler, or the night crawler, and uh, that brought us to the trout dance. And without that, we probably wouldn't be the fly guys that we are today. But you know, that was that was so important um, part of the evolution, and it's all part of an evolution that we go through. And today, you've uh, you've been guiding now how many years, Jack? Uh, Thirty. Thirty years. I've been guiding 28, so I'm almost close to you. But uh, yeah. Yeah. but um, you started out, and I remember seeing pictures of you back then. You looked like uh, Peter Fonda from Easy Rider <laughs> back then. You had these black glasses, these sunglasses. You looked like this this wild and crazy guy, and, and you had that long blonde hair, and I had that type of hair, and now we have all this beautiful gray hair. <laughs> gray, at least, gray. At least we have gray hair. Exactly. Uh, but uh, you you were you were like the wild cowboy. You had that cowboy hat, and I was like, looking, who's this crazy Jack Ford guy?" And, well, uh, I've, I've been uh, going out to Montana every year since 1973, except for one, the COVID year. 
And uh, so I did wear cowboy hats now and now and then, but and I guided for in Montana for twenty five years too. Wonderful. What what rivers did you guide on there? Actually, I became an outfitter and I went to a lot of different rivers, but my home base was by the Yellowstone River. Right. I okay. did a lot of guiding on the Spring Creeks. Matter of fact, I at one time thought about writing a book on Spring Creek fishing. Well, you and I got so much in common because I am a Spring Creek fanatic and I spent every summer for about a month on Nelson's Armstrong and Dupuis in August and uh, when I was in the hotel business. And uh, I I spent uh, 10 years in Washington, D.C. Uh, fishing the Latour in Big Spring and Falling Spring. And I my mentor was Vince Marinero. I used to fish with him on Mondays on the on the Latour. And Ed Shank was a mentor of mine and fished a lot with him and up in Quebec with him. And so spring creeks are in our blood. It's wonderful. That's why I think you're such a good fisherman. Uh, and I think most guys that are, are uh, accustomed to fishing spring creeks are very good fly fish, technical fly fishermen because the demands of a spring creek are substantial. And you really, really got to get, uh, get to know trout in an intimate way on spring creeks. What do you think, Jack? Yep, absolutely. It teaches you a lot. I, I started fishing uh, spring cricks in 1973, and I fished them 14 straight days every summer until wow. I started guiding. And when I started guiding, I, I actually had $10,000 worth of spring crick rods a year for my clients. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's how much, wow. I, that's how much I guided on the spring cricks. On oh. the three that you mentioned, Nelson's, Depew's, Armstrong, and I used to fish a lot on Benart Creek, which was over by Bozeman. That was a great spring creek. Did you fish Dillon also? Oh, yeah. oh excuse me, Poindexter's Poindexter Creek. Oh, yeah. Poindexter over by Dillon. Oh yeah. yeah, I love that little creek. And I, uh, I remember uh, the old lady Nelson. She used to give me a hard time back in the day. Ellen, in the Ellen, 80s. Ellen, yeah, uh, Edwin was great friends of mine. Yeah, she used to yell at me a lot because I was a Cavalier Washingtonian hotelier that thought I could do anything where I want and do whatever I want. She used to yell at me and say, you Washington boys just can't get away with everything out here. you got to respect people's <laughs> rights. And then uh, when the Selectivity came out, I did my Selectivity DVD on Nelson Spring Creek. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to get you a copy of that, Jack, and it's all about fishing those creeks, but I did it with the, with uh, her son and her son who, and her boys run the place right now. And it's, they built those beautiful cabins, which I really um, stayed in for oh, the first time. Them. Yeah. And uh, it's such a great place. And, you know, you now you got Yellowstone, the series and Paradise Valley, but Paradise Valley was always something so special in my heart. And to this day, well, I, I think it's just I've been fun. staying, I've been staying in Paradise Valley every year since 1973. Oh my God. That's so wonderful. Where, where do you stay when you go there? I actually I started renting a place back about 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Okay. An okay. apartment right wonderful. out in the valley up by Black Mountain by Pine Creek Lodge. Yeah. 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 I know. I know where that is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, uh, they just became good friends. So now that I'm not even guiding, they still keep that apartment for me. Oh, that's, that's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that, that explains a lot. You being a spring Creek guy that, that, and, and now you're, you know, guiding in Michigan. And I think that's one of the advantages in that to me, when I came here from the East coast and I never thought I'd wind up in Michigan, I came to manage the Amway grand Plaza hotel and, and be a director there. But 
what gave me that extra edge uh, to understand hatches better and understand trout a little better and, and was fishing spring creeks. And um, I always say to my Pennsylvania buddies that I have quite a few of them that you could master spring creeks, you could master just about anything from salmon to steelhead to just about everything. And uh, that's, that's good to know. I didn't know that special part of you. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about the view from the middle seat lessons learned from a lifetime of guiding this, uh, this book is absolutely beautiful. Uh, I'm overwhelmed by the quality of the book. I mean, it, you did a wonderful job on it. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to read what, what they eat. Chapter one is what they eat. And it's just so beautifully written and such a beautiful sketch. And, um, and that's a Rumfeld sketch, isn't it? David Rumfeld. They all are. They are beautiful. All, all, all of the, every chapter has a heading, uh, drawn by David Rumfeld. And he also painted the cover of the book too. It's it's gorgeous. Absolutely stunning. The cover of the book that's him in the back seat, by the way. Okay, well there you go. Isn't that beautiful? And that and that is uh, my good friend uh, Bob Linzeman in the front seat. God dang it, Bob! Jeez, you made him look good. How did you do that? That's that was pretty good. <laughs> David Rumfeld, well, congratulations. Yeah, you, yeah. You you made Bob Linzeman look semi good. So good for you and Bob. <laughs> I don't care what the hell you think. I could make fun of you. You know that. Um, yeah. but, uh, so what they spent, you know, right. You started right off spending days on the Paramarket river with the true legend, Zimmy Nolf produced some of the most interesting and rewarding highlights of my fly fishing years. Our friendship began in the spring of 1972. And, 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 and you talk about Zimmy Nolf and, uh, very few people know who Zimmy Nolf was, but he was the, one of the first trout legends, guide legends on the Paramarket. Exactly. And um, the Paramarquette was special for me because when I was still in the hotel business, uh, Frank Amato asked me to write a book about the Paramarquette. And I spent three, four days a week on the Paramarquette besides my hotel duties. And I got to interview Zimmy. And, uh, you know, that's when them damn salmon were coming in. And he got really pissed off with those Chinook salmon coming up. And he knew they were going to wreck the stream. And he was already <laughs> complaining. He already started, started sounding like you and me, Jack, way back then. About yep. bitching about everything and fish and how they're going to ruin everything. But um, I had a chance to to interview him. And um, this this river, this Paramarquette River, um, it, it's probably one of the most beautiful rivers in, in in the world. And I look at it now in a more appreciative way than I've ever looked at it because, uh, first of all, if I took pictures of the Paramarquette River right now and took pictures of the river that I fished in Poland as a little boy, they look absolutely identical. You would not know any difference from the Wiesza River or any of the rivers back home, the Riga, or any of those rivers. They look exactly like the forest. The water looks the same. Uh, These are sand soil spring creeks that emanate from sandy chalk stream down type soil, and they act just like spring creeks. They have freestone components to them, but I didn't realize the magnitude of how these rivers look just like a lot of the rivers in the Baltic, Baltic area. And um, so that, that meant a lot to me. And then when I wrote the Nexus book, I dove into the 1884 and then, you know, the, the, how the Western hemisphere came here. And I did a lot of investigating in libraries and local libraries and microfiches. And I found out that the, how the railroad came up here. And I tell that whole story in Nexus, but I was, bit by that river back in 1995 then i went to the muskegon and it didn't really register me 
how beautiful that water is until now that I could look at things with a, with different eyes. How did how did you get struck by this river, the beauty of the Paramarket? When was the first time that you fished it? And when was the first you know, time? When was the, first time I fished it was in 1972, and I rented the place by the dock hole right next to Ziminoff. Sure. And he was a caretaker then. And he and I got to be very good friends because I rented that place for 10 days for the next 20 years. Wow. That is so, and he so and I cool. We fished together. We drank coffee in the morning together. We tied flies in the evening together. And I learned a lot from that man. That is, that is so wonderful. And, and you you know, your book, the quality, um, Everything in it just just looks great. What um, we're going to talk a little bit about your passion for streamers and uh, and there's so much in here. And then every one of your chapters, I love the way you laid it out too, which is really simply and nice. It, it, it just flows so well. Um, it's got a wonderful introduction from uh, George Daniel, who's a wonderful fisherman and wonderful person out in out in Pennsylvania. But I just like the way you just laid the book out and how everything came together. But we're going to talk about that a little more on the Hollow to Waters podcast. When we come back, we're going to take a little break right now. And we are with Jack Ford, and we're talking about guides, the Paramarquette River, and the view from the middle seat. So please stay tuned, and thank you for listening. Able reels have been the pinnacle of reel technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems, are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection, and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their reel systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. uh, And it just, totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, So please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship. Another USA-made company that gives each reel a hand touch and they're boutique-made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, But if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able and you will never be disappointed in an Able product.
Most of you think of Orbis as a trout rod and a real company. Uh, I've known them for many decades. And I had my first Orbis rod, graphite rod, when I was a teenager, using up my hard-earned paper route money uh, to, to buy one. Um, they have been known so much for what they do in the trout world, and their stuff is outstanding, made in Vermont uh, for, for since the, the days fly fishing really started in this country. And um, but, but they've gotten serious with their spay uh, activity, and lately, um, uh, Combs uh, and the rod designers um, got together and say we're going to be taken seriously in this market and they came up with the Orvis Mission uh, two-handed series. Uh, I was blown away when I got my first Orvis two-hander and I took it to uh, to Iceland and I was just just overwhelmed by how well it competed with the other rods that I had with me, the Sages, the G. Lewis's, the Berkheimer's. Um, they put in some serious technology in these rods. Uh, the beauty of them, the handles, the, the grips, the the, the the whole the whole package is just simply amazing and um, they are now a force to be reckoned with in the spay market and you should definitely look at the mission series next time you're going to purchase the rods they're, they're 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 very affordable and they're beautiful in the hand and they feel just as good as the top line spay rod you could possibly imagine so visit orvis go to your orvis dealer your fly shop that carries Orbis and ask for the Orbis mission, give it a test run and look at it and you will be simply amazed how serious Orbis has come into this very competitive spay rod two-handed market. Hello, listeners. If you love the content that you're hearing on the Hollowed Water podcast series, Migratory Spay, um, you will love the, the books that were written by the guests that have been on this podcast series, especially from Topher Brown and myself, who did the inaugural four-hour series. We talked a lot about Atlantic salmon, and uh, if you're addicted to Atlantic salmon, um, Topher wrote his book called Atlantic Salmon Magic which was printed by Wild uh, Wild River Press, and my book, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, uh, by Skyhorse Publications, uh, really take you to the next step if you like what you listen to, if you like all the content that we've been talking about in these podcasts. The next step is to go and read and, and get di- to dive deeper into, into what's behind the magic and the journey for these amazing fish. So we encourage you to go to Amazon, go to your local fly shop or to your bookseller um, and request these books, which will make you see a lot more things that you've missed along the way and uh, dive per- further into the passion for Atlantic salmon.
We are back at Holland Waters Podcast. Thank you for listening to us. We have Jack Ford, uh, one of the most legendary guides on the Pear Market. We're talking about his book, The View from the Middle Seat. And um, it's just such a wonderful book. And it's just so multifaceted. And we just talked about, you know, Jack's passion for Spring Creeks and the time he spent out in Montana. And, uh, you know, his whole passion for mayflies and, and how he got into that. But what I think, you know, what really strikes me and, and a lot of people that fish with Jack and uh, people that know Jack is his his extreme enthusiasm and his karma and zen about streamer fishing. And, and, and his book starts off with his real passion. He talks about his bait fish here. I mean, he does just about everything. He goes into the nine yards of everything in this whole thing and how to read water. But... You could tell behind everything Jack thinks about is 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 meat hunting and how big brown trout wants to eat a big freaking chunk of meat and 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 how his flies swim and sometimes the simplicity of his flies. Um, Jack, where did this all madness come for streamers? Well, you got to tell me all about this, and I'm sure we're going to read about it in your book. But behind that, what you have in your book, because people want to read how to how to how to how to but there's something going on with you and streamers and where did it come from? Where did it start with? Who were your mentors? All that stuff. Well, actually, uh, I started streamer fishing pretty young. Um, because, uh, I had a neighbor that actually chased pike with lures and I would go out with him and I always wanted to, I was already fly fishing by then. I was about 10, 12 years old. And he was always trolling short distances because we would go up in the spring and fall when the pike come into the shallower waters and and go around stumps and stuff like that. And one day I asked him if I could uh, try to catch him with the fly rod because I was always in the front of the boat and he was in the back of the boat. And I uh, got a hold of one of those old uh, iron steel uh, tube fly rods that you pulled out like this, you know? Right, right, yeah. I got up in the front of the boat, and I tied some flies out of stuff that I got, uh, like bucktail and peacock hurl. My my dad had a farm friend. Back then, when I tied flies in grade school and junior high and high and everything else, everything that I got was basically stuff that was either shot or I got from farmers. My dad and I hunted. My friends hunted. So everything was pretty much natural, if you will. But uh used to go up there and bike fish with this guy, Al Bishop, and uh, just troll around with him. And then when I started uh, fishing on the Cedar River and sugar and the tobacco and some of the other rivers, during the day when there wasn't any hatches going on, depending on that time of year, I would just tie on some streamers and go down, walk down the river and float them down into a hole or along a log jam and uh, tease them a little bit and get them big browns to come out and eat it. So that, that was the start of my streamer fishing. Wow. Yeah. And, and so who are your, like, who are your mentors? Who are the guys that really, um, that really you inspired, inspired you to to go? My first mentor would probably have been uh, this this guy, this kid that taught, taught me how to fly fish, his father. He was a Norwegian guy, and when Ziggy went into the service, he and I got closer. We fished fish more together. 
But uh, when, when I started working, I ran into several people through TU, actually, and uh, started fishing with them. And way, way back, uh, I even start tying those Houghton Lake specials for people. Houghton Lake special. Oh, my God. So I, we got to talk. I got to stop you right there, Jack, because um, when I, when I did, oh, my God, Houghton Lake special. Why do I, why am I talking about this? But uh, what's really cool is uh, Houghton Lake special when I did the podcast with Kelly Gallup and he talked about the Houghton Lake special. And I didn't know what the hell a Houghton Lake special was. And now that you're mentioning it, what is with this Houghton Lake special? What is so amazing about it? Well, it it was, He just handed me one that they have in the shop, and believe me, mine was like six inches long. This thing is like two and a half inches long, and this more like a muddler. But uh, this looked just like a Houghton Lake Special, except the Houghton Lake Special had white bucktail over the top with a little peacock, and it didn't have the deer hair head like this. I wound hackle around like this, like brown hackle, and actually made a push fly out of it. So the head, the head's actually pushed. But we used to buy hooks that was like 6X long, 8X long. I used to get them from England through Herder's, Herder's catalog. Right, yeah. Way way back. I that mean, was the big catalog, man. Everybody did Herder's. Yep, that was back in the, you know, I was probably only 15 years old and I was buying stuff out of, out of Herder's. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so that's how I got started. Yeah, and do you still use the Houghton Lake Special? No. no. <laughs> so I, I think you should go and try I to catch a trout say, on I Houghton will Lake. say this. I do know that in the 90s, I was still tying them for a guide over on the Estable River named George Alexander. George, I love George Alexander. That guy was he, such a class guy. He was a judge. He was, he, yep, he was, one, he was one of my best friends, by the way. Oh, what a wonderful man. I had a chance of guiding with him a couple uh take he took me out a couple of times for the hex hatch. And yeah. he was such a great guy. It was so sad to hear him die, man. That was so bad. I, I taught I taught his wife Peggy how to fly fish, actually. Wow. That's that's and, so cool. Uh, he, he used to use my boat and my federal permit on the Asavo because he didn't have one. Wow. So okay. When I went to Montana, I used my raft out there and, and he used my lateral boat the one that I still have now. Wow. And I I let him use it. So, but he used to always ask me to tie his whole link specials because I used to make them about as big as you could make them. And uh, he would fish them day and night. Sometimes he would fish them wet during the day. And sometimes in the night he would grease them up and wake them across the water like, like a big mouse or or a big mouth, you know, and I used to use them up on the Sturgeon River and the Asaba River myself. Wow. Yeah, that fly was was really something. And when Kelly Gallup talked about it and and uh, when I wrote my Nexus book, there was so much talk about these local patterns that most people most people never hear of. Um, what What's the other one that he talked about? It was a night fly. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Um, geez, I can't remember it. There was one other fly pattern. It was Tom Nom's. Did you have much contact with Tom Noms? No. I uh, never met him, Meg. No. That was one he talked about quite a bit too. But so um so that that whole streamer gig got you going and, and it's now, you know, you're it's it's a mainstay of yours, but you know, 
what what I like is the fact that you're so well-rounded in the fact that you you could see everything uh, from dry fly aspect to, to, to nymphing. How much nymphing do you do, or do you don't do much nymphing? I did a lot of it, believe it or not. When I was a teenager, I went up on the north branch of the Cedar River, and there was a guy there that actually was nymphing. And uh, high-stick nymphing. And he had his creel full. And back then, I... When I was a teenager, I took fish too. But I could not believe how this guy was, and I can't even tell you his name, but uh, he put me under his wing and taught me how to nymph fish. So I actually did back then when I was a teenager, uh, I would do a lot of nymph fishing. And I tied tied a lot of nymphs. Uh, (laughs) And back then, my flies really didn't look too good either, by the way. But... uh, they caught, they caught some fish, and I learned a whole lot. And Ziminoff, or not Ziminoff, but Ziggy Spanvik, the guy that really got me started, uh, he was a very, very good nymph fisherman and also a very good nightcrawler fisherman because you basically nymph the same way you night, nightcrawler fish. You know, you'd roll cast it up there, get a high, high tip, let it run down through a run or a hole, and that's how you caught fish. So it's basically, you know, a little bit like the Euro nymphine that they're doing today, but not quite the same thing, you know. Yeah. And we did it with a fly line, you know. Yeah, it's amazing, you know. And and um, I like the way you laid out your book. And everybody, when you buy your book, it's nice because he, he's got beautiful, beautiful fly plates. And um, who did your fly plates, by the way? You mean the artistic yeah. plates? Yeah. The, the bait fish plates? Yeah. Or you mean all, all, where all my fr- friends have their flies and recipes in the back? Yeah, yeah. My wife the, took the plates. My wife took all of them. They're beautiful. Absolutely stunning. Really extremely well done. And, uh, yeah, the book is I like, but I like what the way the book's laid out. It's It's got Jack's tips, and you make it nice and simple. You got five, six, seven, eight tips in the row. Um, you know who, uh, who I got the tip idea from? Who's that? Bob Lindsay. Wonderful. That's Bob. Again, you come up again, you son of a bitch. Where the yeah. hell are you, Bob? Jesus great great idea. I just love it. Yeah, it, it makes it, you know, people want stories and they want everything, but your tip thing come in and Bob, geez, I love Bob's books. And Bob does all the book reviews for hollowed waters. And I think yeah. I still owe him a dozen bagels. So Bob, quit your bitch and your bagels are on the way. I'm not going to give you any more bagels after this. Cause they're too goddamn expensive. They're made. The Russians and the Russians in New York are fucking cost, charging me a fortune for your bagel habits. So you're going to you're gonna have to go back on scotch, Bob. I'm going to start sending you uh, a little bit of uh, Lafroy, Okay, buddy. But, uh, <laughs> He loves his bagels. Oh, yeah, he loves his bagels. He keeps hitting me up, and he hits everybody up, but they're too expensive. So um, let's talk um, Let's talk dry fly activity. Uh, you know, um, you know we're gonna, we, we talked a little bit on this. We know your streamer passion. Um, you know, we're going to take a little break here because there's so much to talk to you about. Your book is just endless in, in, in the knowledge here. But the, the fact that you've covered so many details in it is pretty impressive. But we're going to take a really quick break um, and, and talk about our sponsors a little bit. And we will be back. We're with Jack Ford. We're with the Hollywood Waters Podcast. So we will be right back. <laughs> 
Hooks and lines have been around since Cro-Magnum man and Neanderthal man, and that's what they caught to catch fish. And today, your hooks and your lines and your tippet material and your leaders are so important. And it's the ultimate challenge in what happens with you on on a trout stream or a salmon and steelhead river. Um, Hooks and lines are by far the most important things when it comes down to your choice of quality. And quality is probably the number one thing on the mind of English Sport Group from New York. Um, Maxima Leader Material and Leaders and Daiichi Hooks are their specialties. And I've been a big fan of Maxima as so many fly swingers and spay fishermen for such a long period of time. Their chameleon match up to the toughest conditions, the abrasion, they're, they're stiff enough to turn over large flies. The ultra green and clear uh, are just perfectly blend into a lot of the blue green aqua looking waters of certain salmon rivers that usually have two different types of connotations, a tannic or a very, very bright, clear scenario. Um, Maxima is the ultimate test pound for for heavy, big flies on the swing. Uh, When that fish takes your fly, you're gonna be very protected with Maxima. Daiichi hooks, there's not enough good things I could say about them. Um, In the trout series, the specialty hooks that they have, um, down to their big Alec Jackson spay and their different type of spay hooks that they carry. Um, I would always shop for the best, shop for Daiichi and Maxima, and you will never go wrong. I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly in field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job. Of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi, Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, You won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything. And and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline. Tell Marcos I said hi. And it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. Okay, we are back, folks. We are with Jack Ford at the 1884 Fly Shop in Baldwin on the ground zero waters of uh, of the hollowed Paramarquette River. 
And uh, we are talking about uh, his, his passion for streamers. We're going to get into dry fly fishing. We're going to get into mousing, another thing that Jack does. I don't know how at his age he's got such good vision to do the mousing gig. But I want to talk about, you know, we were just talking quickly about the beautiful fly plates in your in your book and, and the, um, the bait fish plates. And uh, tell us a little bit about those artistic plates again, Jack. Tell, tell us about a little bit about their foundation. Well, anyway, yeah. There was 18 of them that I wanted to put in the book, and I'm not a ph- photographer like uh, Kevin Feenstra, who is great, by the way. Right. It, his photography is unbelievable. But I wanted to have the bait fish in there, and those are all bait fish that are high, highly uh, uh, known uh, by by me and my some of my friends in, uh, in Michigan and throughout the Midwest. But I contacted an artist to paint them, and she says, well, let me just paint three of them and see what you think. And she paints them and they're beautiful. And I said, well, now I got to know how much you want to charge to paint them all. And she says, Jack, she says, just give me a hundred bucks for the materials and I'll paint all 18 of them. Wow. <laughs> that That's unheard of. That's absolutely amazing. Um, that's yep. a story like that. And, you know, um, Kevin's underwater photography has gone to new heights. It's just truly amazing. I have some of his photos in my book too. Yeah. They're just absolutely beautiful. And uh, everything's laid out so, so, so incredibly well, but let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about this, these waters and, and we're here on the Paramarquette river. And for you listeners out there, uh, this is where, uh, the the ground zero came. This is where the magic came in the early 1800s when when um, when Von Baer uh, uh, gave the brown trout to America on his shipment to Cold Spring Harbor in in in, uh, in New Jersey, and it came to one batch went to Seth Green at the Caledonia Fish Hatchery in New York. The other batch came to the New York uh, to the Michigan Fish Commission, and they were raised and they were ready to go. And the train took off there. The, the famous Paramarquette Railroad and came up uh, M37 and dumped a few batches, actually the White River and the and the Bigelow Spring Creek got the same batch of browns that the Paramarquette River had when I did my research. And on these holy waters is, is where the whole brown trout mystique of the Western Hemisphere came up. So if you do come to Michigan, you have to visit the Paramarquette and you have to come and see um, these beautiful spring creek-like waters that just go endlessly and endlessly through bogs and springs and spring bogs and 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 it's all beautiful groundwater and it's just the perfect water combination of beautiful cold water and woods and without the woods these brown trout would not have a home and they love the fact that the wooded wooded creeks are are full of of, of structure for them to hide under but so your your dry fly passion you probably where, where did you really fine-tune your dry fly passion? Was it out in Montana, or do you think you, you, you were a Michigan dry fly fanatic and you took that to Montana? How well, did that I, was, I was dry fly fishing before I ever went to Montana. Okay. But it's, it certainly took off there uh, because of the spring creek fishing. You know, that's what everybody – the main thing, I, I mean, I caught a lot of fish on nymphs on the spring creek, but really and truly I was there for the hatches. You know, midges, PMDs, sulfurs, and the like. And uh, but uh, Michigan's got fantastic dry fly fishing. Oh, so what what I did in my book is I I tried to target trophy fish, and I selected the dry fly fish 
dry fly that I target myself uh, trophy fish with. Right. Henny's is really my favorite hatch, and that's coming up pretty soon. Uh, but uh, all the all the ones in my book are are, are where I are, I target trophy fish with myself. So what what is your first hatch of the spring that you target? Henny hatch. Right. But I fish PMD sometimes before that too. But really and truly, I'm busy steelhead fishing and streamer fishing in the early spring. So I really don't start guiding for dry flies until the hennies, which is the end of April and May. Yeah. Um, have you seen and much I, change? Have you seen much change over the years in the, in the in the duration of hatches? Have you seen like the henny hatch, which the Hendrickson ephemera severia? And by the way, in this um, in, in our spring issue, we have a uh, 46-page piece on Hendrickson's, and we have seven authors that have contributed to it. It's called "Meet the Hendrickson's," and it's it's the mini Bible on the Hendrickson hatch. So, if you guys out there are uh, are going to uh, subscribe to Holland Waters, the, we 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 spent a lot of time talking about this Hendrickson hatch, and uh, it's 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 the it's the mayfly that pretty much is the foundation of spring trout fishing everywhere you go on the East coast and Midwest. It's the Henny hatch. And, 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 you know, we, Josh Greenberg talks about it on the Asabo and we had Ed McCoy and people like that. And we have the guys back East in the Catskills and what your impressions of the Hendrickson hatch. Have, have you seen uh, a change? Have you seen declines? Have you seen, what have, what have you seen from your perspective, Jack? Actually, so the, the, Henny, the Henny hatches where I fish are still very prolific. Wonderful. We had, a, we had a disaster with the gray drake hatch last right. year. Right. But yeah. the henny hatches, as far as I know, are just as prolific as they were back when I started fishing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They're, they're very good on the Asavo. They never were great on the Pierre Marquette, the hennies, but there's enough of them there to catch some fish. But on some of the rivers, like the Manistee and the Asavo and a lot of other ones, including some of the little rivers that I fish. Right. I, I believe that the hennies are still going very strong. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And and so your dry fly tactics, are you a big proponent of um, you know, short short leaders, long leaders? Do you do use a lot of tip? I mean, everybody has their own style. I personally like to use the longest leader possible. I use like eighteen foot leaders on the Muskegon, almost twenty foot leaders with very long, stiff, 023 brown maxima chameleon uh, from the butts to the to the first leader. Uh, and then there's guys like... Well, you know, that's that's, that, that's kind of like the leader that Jack used to make over there in Roscommon. Did you ever get a hold of any of his leaders? They used no. to be... I mean, I would go to Montana, and people would be asking me to bring them from Jack Schwager or something like that his name was. No, never knew him, never knew him. Yeah, it was unbelievable. But anyway, uh, I I use longer leaders based on where the what river I'm fishing and how long a drift you're going to get right. and the water depth, etc. And certainly, like on spring creeks, I would use leaders like 12 feet long, you know, 12, 13 feet long. And typically, I, I tie a seven and a half or a nine foot leader on and then I add three foot tip. Right. Right. Um, so 
you're, let's talk about let's talk about hex hatch fishing and your whole approach. How's your your vision? Must be still pretty good to 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 still do the hex hatch. Well, you know, it it's more listening than visual. But my my hearing is not as good as my vision actually. So like uh, I remember being on the Pier Marquette one day, and the guy says, and we're anchored up, waiting 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 for a big one to feed where I'm at. He said, you hear that fish downstream? I said, no, I don't hear nothing. <laughs> he says, well, you better pull your damn anchor. There's one down there bigger than a horse feeding. So I pulled anchor, and we went down like 100 yards, and holy cow, there was a monster down there. But uh, I don't know. Uh, in my book, I talk about it. But uh, I have a tendency to go out and fish hexes after everybody leaves. And I fish till nine or ten in the morning. Jesus! So you you go out and fish hexes after everybody leaves, and you're probably picking up on fish that um, people missed, right? I'm pick, I'm picking up on fish that are still looking for something good to eat. Oh my God! How do you adjust your ski? How do you adjust your? <laughs> go ahead. The first time I took George Daniel fishing that way, he couldn't believe it. Like he got like six or eight fish, you know, 16 to 22 inches long. And half of them he saw take the, take the rise because it was already getting daylight. Oh, my God, my friend. And, and are you going to – how long are you going to hex fish? You may not be, here? but I, I've been fishing this way since I was in my late teens because my girlfriend back then – used to work and I didn't have a job. I never went to work until I was 18. So, and I graduated at 17. So I was already out of school, graduated, not working. Cause my dad, this is what my dad told me. He said, what are you going to do when you get out of uh, school? I said, well, I'm going to go in the Marines. He says, well, hold off for a while. He says, if I was you, I'd go back up to the cottage and stay there as long as you want, because that'll be the last time you can do that until you, retire i went up there and fished and came home in november so anyway my girlfriend her and i would watch johnny carson every night and then i would go fish the hex hatch during the hex hatch at one at 1 30 in the morning everybody's gone so i fish all night i got used to doing it and and you can't believe I mentioned it to a couple of other other guides up there, uh, and now and they're they're starting to do some of it up on the Asabo too. My I God, Jack, you're an animal. You're an absolute animal. I just can't believe the stuff that you're hearing me. This is this is absolutely incredible. Um, so where um, are you when you tie your when you're into hex fishing? Do you think it's a matter you know of, of a parachute, or are you are you imitating? cripple emergers are you imitating spinners are you what do you, so if, what I do you do? It, if i do it in the dark i use a big robert's yellow drake i've okay. always i've always liked the robert's yellow drake because it's got that white wing that sticks up right and sometimes you can actually see it you know because of the contrast but when when it starts getting daylight i uh start using a uh hex with a foam body, a split tail, and actually CDC wings. It's it. They're in my book. 
And wow. that, that fly is incredible. That thing really floats good, looks good, and the fish love it. That, that's awesome. Um, so we're going to take one more break, and we're going to come back we're with Jack Ford. We're talking about um, his whole epiphany journey of, of the multifaceted guide perspective that, that Jack brings to the table in his book, The View from the Middle Seat, which is a must-have for everybody out there that that wants to be a guide or or people that are trying to understand what goes on in a guide's mind. But this is sort of a, a guide chat, and uh, and we're going to be right back uh, to Hollow Waters Podcast. Thanks for listening. say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years, and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter, and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod um the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed and, and especially if you're doing scandy tapers underhand casting with sinking heads um deep dredging skagits um with with heavier um weighted intruders um they do it pretty much all and even with floating lines like in long belly uh traditional spay casting uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional style is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing if you're a serious spade fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're going to really enjoy these rocks. listeners as publisher of hollowed waters journal i'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year uh our accolade winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over we treat each topic and article as a mini bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. No other magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe.
We are back with Howard Waters Podcast. Thank you for all listening. And uh, we just want to mention that uh, we have the new spring issue out now, the trout opener issue. We have a beautiful piece, of, a 46-page mini Bible on the Hendrickson Hatch. We also have uh, other beautiful pieces in there about arrivals and departures, how to target spring steelhead, uh, fresh chrome fish on the swing, and how to target dropback steelhead. And, and, and uh, respect the, the fish's right to spawn. We have other pieces, Come Hell or High Water, a beautiful streamer piece that we did, uh, which uh, features Tommy Lynch and uh, Kelly Gallup. And we have Jack Ford featured in the migratory chase in the, um, in the meat locker about his book and his passion and all the things that Jack does. And, uh, and small spring creeks about little, t- fishing tiny little creeks as big as, as your bathtub and how to how to get big brown trout in these little tiny creeks that run through farms and mountains and backwoods and so there's a, it's a loaded chapter uh hope you come to it and uh, we're going to continue our brown trout series in the springtime and we're also doing a scientific series where we have james dexter from the michigan dnr talking about the restoration of um of coaster brook trout of the new grayling program and how michigan introduced all these great things here in the hollowed waters waters of the Pear Marquette, where we are, and so much to talk about and so much to do. But we're back with the famous Jack Ford, the man who just never, never stops moving, man. This guy's the energizer buddy that I, bunny that I've never seen before. And the fact that he could do so many different things is mind-boggling. Let's talk mousing. Um, my experience with mousing is with uh, that great Tommy Lynch guy, that that man who, who, who just... Uh, took mouse to a different level, but um, Jack, let's talk about your experiencing with mousing and, and what got you addicted to it. Who got you addicted to it? When did the concept of mousing come into Jack Ford's tremendous repertoire? Well, this is pretty crazy, but uh, I've talked about uh, Ziggy Sandvik uh, before, but when I was uh, still in high school, even, he took me over onto the Sugar River one time. The story's in the, in the book, actually. And uh, back then, I didn't even have a pair of waders yet. I was wearing uh, hip boots. And uh, he, he, he took me over on the Sugar River one time, and he, he tied his mice out of the deer hair. Like, like I told you, every, everything was natural with him, and that's how, how I tied my flies. And he gave me a few tips and, uh, and handed me a flashlight, basically, and told me where to stand and keep my light off and, you know the the whole the whole routine, but I actually started mousing when I was still in high school. Yeah, what uh, what is your theory on mousing? I mean, um, do you think they're really targeting mouse, or it's anything that goes creepy crawling in the nighttime? What is your personal interpretation uh, and experience with mousing in terms of that respect? Well, I, I I think the fish are predators, and especially brown trout. Uh, get nocturnal and they they swim around at night and they're looking for food and they're going to eat anything that's moving. Yeah. And most of the time, I mean, it can be a mouse, but uh, I've also, last summer, I had a client catch a, a mouse in Michigan or a brown trout, 28 inches long on a mouse during the day in Michigan. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty. I, walk, I walked into a fly shop about a month ago, and the lady said she was walking along the Pier Marquette during the day. 
just looking at it, not even fishing. And she saw a shrew running along the bank. Yeah. yeah. And she saw this shrew get to a spot and it actually slid and fell into the river. And it's floating down the river. And she says, oh, my God. She said, a big brown trout come up and ate it. <laughs> so yeah, so they they do eat uh, they do eat moles and shrews and all that stuff, and that is part of the reason why. But the fact that I also, you know, I also used a lot of big moths, like okay. a moth. Yeah, I when I, when I was young, right? I probably used more moth type flies than I did uh, streamers. I tied them with great big wings that stuck out the side, and I would throw them and, and swing them. And they were they were white colored, so I could kind of see them once in a while. But uh, I I probably fished more with moth type flies when I was that age than I did mice on top of the water at night. Yeah, and that was you know I I grew up in New York and um, fished the Catskills in Western New York and moth patterns were really big and that was sort of a mainstay of of Catskill fishing was never seeing spiders and moths that just created a lot of motion on the water, a lot of commotion, a lot of, right. a lot of movement. And, you know, um, the, 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 the fact that, you know, when you talk about, and you have a lot of good examples of how brown trout are nocturnal and predator killers uh, in my uh, Nexus book, in my chapter eight, I talk about Trudosaurus, the ultimate kill artist and, and how, you know, I was fishing these little tiny creeks in Western New York an Amish country. And um, I was, I don't know, geez, about 13 years old, and I didn't go out by myself. My uncle would take me, and he would watch me and sit there on the bank and drink a beer and smoke a cigarette and watch me go into the woods. But this one big brown trout was 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 smashing water like a shark at nighttime, and I could never figure out what it was. And then the Amish boys came along and with spinning rods the next night, and they caught the damn thing, and his whole belly was full of little moles. Of ice, and he also had a small duckling, a small baby duckling in his belly. Oh, this was a, probably about a 12, 14 pound brown trout. And that son, <laughs> that thing had moles and a small baby duckling that looked like it just hatched. And that mm-hmm. thing was targeting anything that moved. It was, they're ferocious critters. And that's why we love the streamer bite. We love that violent attack because they'll eat anything that they can get their hands on, anything that'll fit in their damn mouth. They're going to, they're right. going to target. Um, well, back back when I was young, I kept, kept fish when I was a teenager. I didn't, st- I didn't go to catch and release until 1962. Right. But I, uh, I quit killing uh, trout in Michigan in 1962. But back, so back then, when I kept a fish, I happened to notice how many of these big moths was, was in their stomachs. And that's one reason why I went to them, you know. Yeah, that's um, that's that's so much good stuff there. And so, you know, when when you we're going to talk, I want to talk about terrestrials and, and your experience and, you know, being a Montana guide, how much you probably fished the crap out of oh, hopper yeah. and droppers and oh, dropper yeah. hoppers and and you know, right. there's so much terrestrial activity out there. Um, where where does that all fit in now uh, in your guiding um, w- that you do in Michigan now? When do you start to really start focusing on terrestrials? And what is your favorite type of terrestrial fishing? And do you actually go ahead? I don't focus on terrestrials until after the hex edge. Okay. 
but then once once that is gone, I got a few favorite patterns that I use, and uh, there's some pretty great terrestrial fish in, in Michigan, but out, out west just really rocks, you know. Yeah, hopper yeah. fishing and uh, uh, stuff like that. Um, uh, anything with rubber legs works, <laughs> and I'm a big fan of this Ch- Chanel Blant, by the way. Yeah, and I've caught. I have. I've ca- I have caught summer run steelhead on a snowball ant on the Pier Marquette River oh, yeah. during the day. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, amazing. That uh, hoppers. I caught a. I, I well, I know to talk to Tommy Lynch all the time. He catches summer steelhead uh, on hoppers. I caught one hopper back in eight, uh, 1994 when I was writing the Pier Marquette River Journal. I was up above Green Cottage and I was tra- hopper fishing. For trout, and all of a sudden I got this freaking eight pound chrome <laughs> steelhead that just whacked the hell out of it on a four weight and took yeah, me downstream. Yeah. I, I fell in the pool, like almost drowned. I'm still holding on to the rod. My wife's screaming at me, get the hell out of the water, you're gonna kill yourself. I never had a see- summer steelhead take a hopper before until I fished above Green Cottage. But are, are you a are you a big hopper dropper fan? Are you a big advocate I don't of that? You don't. I don't know, why, but I, I, you know what? I even I usually do one thing at a time. Yeah, but me I mean, too. I'm not a big fan of hopper dropper. I don't like it at all, and I think it messes up a well, fish. I get more fish refusals to hoppers and droppers than I do anything else. I agree because it creates drag to drag to the uh, dry fly. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not. I mean, it works if you got a bunch of clients that come and fish once a year. And aren't very good fishermen. You might want to use a hopper and dropper just to get them some fish. But uh, I'm very fortunate. I've been guiding people. Most of my people have been guiding for 25 or 30 years. And a lot of them might be able to fish me now. I don't know. But so I don't really need that dropper to catch fish with the dry fly. Yeah. And I'll tell you, tell you what, one of the best things that I do in the summertime is a fish the beer market with damselflies, the black damselflies is incredible fishing. That's in your book. You got a black damselfly in your book, don't you? Yeah, that's what I tie. Yeah, it's beautiful. But uh, do you ever see one of them Orbis psycho ants, they call it? Yeah, yeah. It's in the catalog? Yeah. That's my my all-time favorite right now as far as a terrestrial. I tie all my own flies, all my own flies except for that one. And I buy that one, and I have caught so many huge big browns on that in the middle of the day on the Asabo, Yellowstone River, or wherever I'm at. It just seems to work. Wow. The, the psycho ant. <laughs> the psycho ant. Um, so, you know, when you're fishing the Paramarquette with hoppers, and it's the summer gig, and you got all the the tube flotilla or the asable. You got the tube flotilla. I mean, uh, canoe flotilla more. Of the, I got the tube flotilla on the Muskegon. Right. But when you're fishing like the asable, um, or you're fishing the pear marquette, um, and and it's summertime and it's terrestrials, and um, so you're 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 taking clients down. What are the if you had three things to tell them about, you know, terrestrial fishing on a Michigan spring Creek, i.e. the, the, the pear Marquette or the Asable, what, what are those things that you must have to do that when you're fishing those terrestrials? Keep the fly ahead of the boat. If you want okay. a big fish, you don't wait for the boat to get up to you. 
And something that I've noticed is if I use my hard boat in the summertime versus my raft, when I go down a river with my hard boat, I can see these big fish moving away. I go down a river with my raft, and I'm running over them before they move. Yeah. yeah. My advice is if you got both in the middle of the summer when the fish are a little bit spooky because they're sitting out in the middle of the river, waiting for something good to float down, use your raft. Right. Yep. And uh, you got to put that fly right next to the bank. I mean, it has to hug that bank in the bright sunshine. And you, you got to pop it. I like to pop that hopper or terrestrial off the bank if I could get lucky and let it land right next to that lunker structure because yep. on, on the creeks, that's very true. That's very true. But on the Pier Marquette, it's so small. A lot of those big trout actually come out and sit in the middle of the river. But sometimes in the middle of the river, it's actually deeper. Yeah. And they'll, oh, yeah. They'll, they'll sit out, in, you know, there'll be like a little gravel run and then a pocket out in the middle right. of the river. Yeah. And then those, those, those big browns will be sitting right out in the middle sometimes, too. Yeah. So whenever you see some water in the middle of the river that looks a little deeper, that's where you want to drift your fly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think both both areas are good, but I my luck has yeah. always been on, on, on a lot of small forested streams that I fish. It's like they are so glued to that structure, and oh, yeah. they're almost afraid to come out into the into the open. But hey, PM, brown, yeah, there's beautiful brown, brown trout love structure. Yeah. There's just no but you know. That's why Michigan has the best the most beautiful brown trout fishing in the world because of the structure. We have woods and you got woods well, and you got wood with all these ash trees dying. <laughs> oh god. Um, that's all I'm doing on my property is sawing trees left and right and it, it's just yeah. absolutely absolutely crazy. Terrible. Terrible. Well, we've been talking with Jack and uh I just want to go this has been a very enlightening um uh podcast and uh it's so it's such an honor to be here at eighteen eighty four Fly Shop and to be on the in the Paramarquette River. Um, and I want to, you know, I want to do a couple more things. I have a couple minute, one minute zip clip questions for Jack because um, you got to get his book. His book is encompassing. Uh, I've written I've written a lot of books, but I've never seen a book that has done so well like Jack's. And uh, you got to pick one up. You can get it through the Fly Shop here, eighteen eighty four. You can get it through Jack and Jack's website and stuff. And um, you know, it, it, if you're a trout, if you're a trout bum of the highest degree and the highest passion, you need to look at the way he looks, lays this book out because it it it, ins, it fills you in on a lot of insights into things that you don't really think about a lot of times, and he makes it easy for a novice. He makes it uh, intuitive for a for a veteran to look at this book and to see, you know, things that he's missed along the way because a guide's perspective is all always a perspective that you don't see as an angler. He, the guides look at things a little differently on a day-to-day basis. But mainly a guy lear- guide learns a lot from day-to-day. So what he knew the day before, a lot of times he throws it in the trash can because he just learned something new about something. So that's the, the that's the beauty of the open mind. Yep. Yeah. So, Jack, uh, how do you stay in shape? What's your key to staying in shape, buddy? How do you, how do you at this age, row 12 miles down the river, uh, and and what what's your what's your what's your tonic what's your dope what's your magic what's your religion? The whole deal is you don't stop doing it. Yep, yep. So you do you do any other exercises at all? Uh, some, not a lot. Okay. So yeah, I the, do uh, I do some steps at home. 
walk up and down flights of steps. Right. I had a bike. I used to run marathons actually years ago, but and I I ran every day years ago. But cool. uh, the last ten years, I lift a, some weights with my arms and hands to strengthen them. But mostly, uh, I try to keep out there, keep on the water, and keep keep doing what I do. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, what uh, What do you like to eat? What's your favorite food? Everything. Okay, so if I so had I, one thing I like is your recipes. I just love looking at your uh, food on Facebook. And, oh, me? Uh, I don't do food. I I, I eat junk food. No, uh, I'm, I'm a fanatic about it. It's. Yeah, good. I told you about that a long time ago. That uh, you need to put more of that on online because uh, we can all enjoy it. But uh, well, that's good because I get the new issue. We're going back to wild mushrooms, and I got so many great dishes in there. With right. my wonderful wife Lori, who does also a chef, and she's uh, we got some really good stuff coming out. We got an Alsatian onion wild mushroom tart. It's like a deep dish quiche, and man, that thing right. is just absolutely amazing. So you could right. bake it at home and uh, come in yeah. and enjoy that. Um, so uh, if you're not I fishing, I just left a great restaurant to get here in Baldwin. Now the Eight Seven Six Restaurant. Have you eaten there yet? I have not eaten there, but I've heard great things about it. Oh, they got some good food and they got a great chef. Well, you 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 said you'd buy me lunch today, but I, I can't do lunch today. But uh, well, next, I'm going to take you up time, on it when we go fishing. I'll take you there. How's okay. That? Well, I I'm going to hold you to it because I would love to go love to go there. Uh, when you're not fishing, Jack, what do you do for what what do you do for a passion? What do you do for your hobby? Tie flies. Tie flies. Okay, but let's say when you're not fishing and you're not tying flies, what do you do? What is Jack? What what can make Jack happy? Well, I used to shoot bow and arrow archery. I okay. shot that a lot, actually. Okay. But, uh, my 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 life since I retired is pretty much encompassed by fishing, flying tie tie flies, and stuff like that. Right now. Wonderful. Uh, I what also, from time to time, I do some painting or drawing, too. What was your favorite all-time movie, if you had one movie to watch again? Wow. Not not River Runs Through It, but... Uh, <laughs> wow. I don't even know the answer to that. Uh, what's the movie you've seen... What's the movie you've watched the most? I couldn't even tell you, because I, I don't go to the movies that much. Okay, so yeah, you, you know have what? got to have one movie that you really struck your heart. And I haven't, turned, like. I haven't turned my TV on in a year, by the way. Oh, my God. So you are a backwoodsman. God bless you. What kind of music you listen to? I like it all. but I like the older music, but I also like some classical. Okay, great. Classical. What's your favorite classical composer? Fifth. Wonderful. Wonderful. What uh, is your favorite drink? Used to be all of them. <laughs> right now, I, I, I like I, probably if I drink anything the most, it would be coffee right now. Good. I like good coffees. Good. All and right. You, you don't want to interview me until I've had one. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. I'm drinking coffee right now out of this little blue thing right here. Um, yeah. Jack, uh, I uh, I was real pleasure having you. Um, we can't thank you enough for being on the Hollow Hours podcast, being here at 1884 Fly Shop, and come over to Baldwin and see this beautiful place. Pay homage to the birthplace of Western Hemisphere Ground Zero brown trout. 
Um, it's a special place, Michigan, with everything that we have to offer here. Uh, in, in the podcast that we come and have coming up with James Dexter from the Michigan DNR, uh, we, we talked about 1876, we brought steelhead here to the Great Lakes. 1884, we brought brown trout here from Germany. Uh, uh, 1968, we brought the King and Pacific Salmon and the Coho Salmon Experiment. We are now restoring coastal brook trout. We are now restoring uh, railing. So much has been done in this state. We now have one of the best Atlantic salmon fisheries that I, I spend a lot of time with and I guide for. And uh, there's just so much here. There's so much fresh water that we manage. So come to Michigan, come to Baldwin, come and see 1884. Uh, visit all the great people that live up here and um, spend a day with Jack on the river. Uh, you'll learn a tremendous amount. Bring a notepad, notepad and a book. And actually, you know, you don't need a notepad. You just go buy his book because his book tells his whole life story there. And uh, this has been the Hollowed Waters podcast series. And we hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed talking to Jack. And uh, we hope you stay tuned for more Uh, podcast to come on Apple and Spotify. Thank you, everybody. We'd like to wish um, our friends in Ukraine all the blessings and love and the grace right now that they need. Um, And uh, my cousins in Poland and everyone, God bless you and hope we resolve this terrible atrocity that's happening. So say prayers. Be safe, everybody. Be well. Take care of each other. And thank you so much for listening to Howard Waters Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.